So the talk comes in four parts, and the major emphasis will be on hormonal mechanisms and neural mechanisms underlying male typical aggression. And the problem is pretty obvious. Uh, Daly and Wilson are Canadian psychologists, and they looked among a bunch of North American cities, and they found that when they plotted a lifetime incidence of murders by males of unrelated males, that the curve over the lifetime very closely matched uh, the levels of testosterone in the blood. And th their uh, claim was that it was universal in the sense that their findings were not limited to North American cities. They studied many other parts of the planet as well. Since in laboratory animals, we know that uh, testosterone is required for the initiation of male typical aggression, we obviously want to know what the, what the hormonal mechanisms are. And they split into two parts. One would be androgen-dependent transcription in neurons. That would be gene expression in neurons. And the other would be rapid membrane-initiated mechanisms that don't necessarily require transcription. And the way the first one works is as follows. That androgen receptors, which are proteins, AR, androgen receptors, if and only if they are bound by testosterone, come from the cytoplasm of the neuron into the nucleus, and they bind to a specific nucleotide sequence on DNA, which, if they are surrounded by other proteins called coactivators, will lead to androgen-dependent, testosterone-dependent gene expression in neurons. And we know that that kind of gene expression is required for the initiation of male aggression uh, in laboratory animals. And one example would be the testosterone-dependent uh, uh, expression of vasopressin in certain hypothalamic neurons. But not all of aggressive behavior um, uh, in the, uh, as caused by neurons depends upon gene expression. And in a couple of slides, I'll show some data that illustrate two principles of hormone actions in the brain. The first is that sometimes the final hormone product acting in a neuron is not the hormone that you injected or applied otherwise. It's actually a metabolite of that hormone. And the second thing is, as I just said, not all hormonal actions in the brain involve altered gene transcription. These two types of mechanisms have been shown in other systems that we've worked on to cooperate with each other. Uh, but that kind of cooperation has not been shown yet for aggressive behavior. So first, the chemistry. When you inject testosterone uh, into an animal, it can, it can act as testosterone chemically. Here are the four rings that are typical of a steroid, the A ring, the B ring, the C ring, the D ring. And it can be metabolized into dihydrotestosterone or into estradiol. And with respect to aggressive behavior, amazingly enough, some of the actions of testosterone in the brain on, on aggressive behavior are actually due to its conversion to estradiol. And here's one proof of that. If you look at this complicated slide and just concentrate on the left side, you'll see that 15 minutes of estradiol treatment in the hands of uh, Brian Trainer, who's now at uh, UC uh, Davis, 15 minutes of estradiol exposure uh, it would be sufficient to increase aggressive behavior uh, uh, compared to control. And by the way, a side point of that study is that this is particularly effective if the animals have only 10 uh, hours of light per day and 14 hours of dark compared to the other way around, 14, 14 of light, 10 of, 10 of dark. So the action of estradiol as a testosterone metabolite depends upon the circadian uh, rhythm. And, it, and that effect, that effect happens too quickly uh, to be involved with uh, new gene expression. 
The way steroids are acting in the brain, uh, when they're acting uh, membrane-initiated and with very rapid actions, is that they're acting very much like neuropeptides. That is, the steroid comes to the nerve cell membrane, it binds to a receptor, and then there's a series of what we call signal transduction steps, very rapid signal transduction steps, which can lead to phosphorylation of ion channels in the neuron and to a change in electrical activity very rapidly, rapid enough to account for that uh, effect that I showed on the previous slide. And then also, there are later uh, consequences of this signal transduction path set of pathways such that there can eventually be new gene transcription, which would be slow actions of hormones in the brain. What about neural mechanisms independent of whether they're testosterone dependent or not? The two examples that I'll show today are major neurochemical systems, both of which regulate aggression by decreasing aggression. And here's some raw data. What Cervantes did in the laboratory of uh, Ivan Delville at the University of Texas is to uh, measure aggressive behavior in a very large number of male hamsters and to choose extremes such that he had a low aggressive group and a high aggressive group. Then, among those animals, he either gave vehicle or he gave a low dose or a high dose of a serotonin receptor agonist, which is abbreviated DPAT. And then he said, in the tests following the vehicle or the drug, did the animal show a high level of aggression, five, four, three, or did they show a low level of aggression, zero aggressive bouts? And he found that in the high aggressive group, but not in the low aggressive group, a higher dose of the drug, the serotonin active drug, would, uh, would essentially prevent aggression. There'd be no aggression at all. This is in hamsters. Now the work of Hussein and Adele, in Alan Siegel's laboratory at, uh, at Rutgers, um, doing a much different kind of experimental paradigm. In this case, they're, they're using cats, and they're electrically stimulating the medial hypothalamus of these cats, such that the cats will show a vicious attack. They're hissing, they're clawing, they're biting. And the major um, comparison for today's purpose would be to compare uh, the squares with the triangles. The squares is where they're given the vehicle, and the triangles is where they're given that same uh, serotonin receptor agonist, DPAT, and you'll see that the latency to uh, uh, aggressive attack, this, uh, this high hissing, what do they call it, defensive rage, defensive rage, the latency to show it is significantly elevated when you give the serotonin agonist. Adero, working in the lab of Cornelius Gross at a European molecular biology laboratory, worked with mice, and he genetically engineered these mice so that they would show high levels of serotonin receptor 1A expression, but only in serotonin neurons, in the so-called RAFE neurons of the midbrain. And the effect of doing that is to decrease serotonergic neuronal activity. By genetically engineering the mice in this way, he effectively damped down uh, serotonin activity in the brain. And looking at the top half of the slide, the, the percentage of uh, animals showing attack went up uh, in, the, in the genetically modified animals. The numbers of attacks went up, the latency to attack went down, and the, the black bars show more aggression than the light bars. So in three different species with three different methodologies, uh, hamsters, uh, cats, and mice, we see that higher serotonergic activity in the brain is correlated with and in fact causes less aggression. I'd like to switch now to a much different neurochemical system. Nitric oxide, NO, is a very unusual uh, neurotransmitter in that it's a gas. 
And what Randy Nelson did, he's chief of uh, neuroscience at uh, Ohio State University, is to engineer mice such that the enzyme that causes the, the uh, synthesis of nitric oxide, namely neuronal nitric oxide synthase, was simply absent. The minus minus means that the gene is not being expressed at all. In the absence of nitric oxide, because it can't be synthesized, the latency to aggressive attack is significantly reduced. The number of attacks and proportion of total attacks uh, is increased. And when you give a drug which inhibits nitric oxide activity, uh, the amount of attacking goes down significantly. So again, uh, nitric oxide signaling across the brain uh, reduces aggression. Returning to testosterone, what is testosterone doing in the brain such that uh, uh, aggression is increased? To make it very simple, testosterone turns on neurons that activate aggressive behavior and it inhibits neurons that inhibit aggressive behavior. So perfect examples of neurons that activate aggressive behavior would be vasopressin neurons from the work of uh, Heert de Vries at Emory University uh, in, in a group called the bed, uh, a neuronal group called the bed nucleus of the tria terminalis. And uh, testosterone inhibits electrical activity in, these in a forebrain group called the septum, which in turn inhibits aggressive behavior. And so these two things working in parallel massively facilitate the initiation of aggressive behavior, not necessarily the maintenance, but the initiation of aggressive behavior in laboratory animals. I'd like to finish up by giving a perspective uh, on these raw data. Uh, and since uh, we're, we're in a symposium about male violence, I'd like to talk about epigenetic contributions to the multiplicity of gender roles. In a sketch, uh, my former administrative assistant was an artist. Uh, we picture the lifetime as skiing down the mountain. And since we're in La Jolla, this is gonna to have to be a California baby. And the old view, as we go through the early part of life, would be that 150 years ago, you had only two choices. You had a strongly masculine gender role or a strongly feminine gender role. But a more modern view is the following. Same California baby, or shall we say, the great-granddaughter and great-grandson, with the new view, uh, time uh, represented as going down the mountain, and we see that on the Y chromosome, we have the SRY gene, which itself is a compound of two uh, separate genes, following SRY expression to determine the, texas, uh, the testes uh, and testis development. You have the X chromosome inactivation, which is an extremely complex process. It's not a random process, and it's not the same from individual to individual. Uh, we have genetic imprinting, in which an individual gene on an autosome may only express the parental contribution to that gene, or it may only express the, the uh, allele that came from the mother, the paternal imprinting or maternal imprinting. We have a single uh, phrase called chromatin chemistry, which hides incredible complexity, uh, DNA methylation, uh, histone modification, and non-coding RNA. Uh, we have not only testosterone uh, 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 action in the central nervous system, but also another hormone called anti-Mullerian hormone, and then as the baby goes through life, there are gonna be certain critical periods where the environmental, is, the environmental uh, contribution is significant, the neonatal period and the pubertal period. And finally, we have the environment during pu uh, puberal years. If you're in a very small town, uh, the question might be, who's cute? And uh, I'm told that if you sign on to Facebook now and you're asked about your gender role, uh, you have more than 50 choices. 
And what I'm trying to say is that uh, these steps, the, the complexities of X chromosome inactivation, genetic imprinting, and chromatin chemistry, which is one of the hot areas of modern biochemistry, we have more than enough complexity to account for the range of gender roles uh, current in modern society. The final slide takes a perspective uh, which was published in, 19, in 2001 by James Gilligan. Uh, when James Gilligan was a professor at Harvard, he was also uh, the chief psychiatrist of the Massachusetts prison system. And his book says that we should try to prevent violence by young men as a manifestation, by, by treating it as a manifestation of a public health problem, using the steps that you would treat, that you would use if you were trying to prevent diphtheria or, or typhoid. And that step one should be primary prevention. You should institute tactics that are aimed at transforming social institutions and practices that foster violence. And that would be that you're gonna have excellent prenatal care, excellent nurturing uh, uh, environment in the neonatal period and so forth. Secondary prevention is to apply tactics, uh, to get, use tactics that apply to individuals at risk. You already know by virtue of the person's environment or the person's uh, neonatal, neonatal or pre-adolescent um, pre behavior that the kid is at risk, probably a boy. And then tertiary prevention would be tactics that apply to adolescents who already have exhibited violent behavior that's probably gonna be some combination of drug therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. So I, uh, th this final slide could be given an alternate title and it would be easy to say, hard to do. Thank you. Thank you.